Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm Justin Bird, joined tonight by Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu and our producer, Dr. Steve Wilson, along with our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur. What a full house. Say hi, guys. Hey, how's everyone doing? Love the enthusiasm, boys. Our guest tonight is Dr. Michelle Starr, who is here to discuss hyponatremia. She's a recurrent guest. Unbelievably high-yield episode. Stick around. Um, But before we get into content, hey, Chris, can you remind us about the show? Yes. We're the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answer linking questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. All right, today we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Michelle Starr, MD, MPH, who's a pediatric nephrologist and neonatal nephrology nerd and returning super fan of the Cribsiders. She works at Indiana University School of Medicine and Riley Hospital for Children, where she cares for children with kidney disease. Her research focuses on neonatal kidney disease, specifically fluid overload and acute kidney injury, but she's also passionate about medical education, social determinants of health, and improving outcomes for children on acute dialysis. Dr. Starr teaches us about how hyponatremia is really all about the water, how to use serum and urine osms to assess the ADH activity, and how to fix that sodium lickety split, but not too fast because that's bad. You know, it's really just the right concentration of information, no dilution of the facts, so we better get to it. Yeah, that's pretty good. Welcome back, Dr. Michelle Starr, coming back to the Cribsiders, the the honorary chief of nephrology of Cashlack Hospital. Welcome back. Thank you. I feel like I should put this on my CV at this point. So it's an well, honor to be back. I'm very happy to do this today. It, it's on our we, CVs. So <laughs> yeah, you you have admitting privileges. Yes. We we drop your name everywhere we go. And so we're excited to have you back to learn more about kidneys and all the things that they do with the, the salts, you know, and the and the water. And <laughs> it's just all oh, those things. It's a lot. All those things. Um <laughs> And we've done this before, but because we're an informal group, can we call you Michelle on air? Is that okay? Absolutely. Beautiful. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for teaching us more again. And for the people that maybe didn't see the wonderful episodes on maintenance fluids or other episodes you've done with us, can you remind our listeners who you are and what you do? Yeah. So I am Michelle Starr. I am a pediatric nephrologist at Indiana University School of Medicine. I am a mom of three and I love everything kidneys. So I am a researcher in my free time, but I also focus a lot on medical education, particularly as it pertains to kidneys. Beautiful. And we are going to tap into that skill set because one, uh, especially the maintenance fluids has been one of our most popular episodes I think the people out there are dying to learn more about electrolytes and kidneys. And we at Cashlack like to give people what they want. And so we're just going to dive right into it. But before we move on, I have to tell you about a great deal coming your way. With the fall season already in swing, you might be looking for some wholesome, convenient meals for those busy days in the hospital or office. Factor. 
America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. So sometimes I don't want to cook with the limited amount of time I have at home, but Factor has taken away that pressure. It's exactly what we all need as busy professionals in medicine. So relish the best of autumn with fall flavors. Factor's limited-time-only menu featuring seasonal veggies like cranberry pecan chicken and apple Dijon pork chops. Ready in just two minutes, they'll satisfy your fall cravings during the busy season without the hassle. So this October, get Factor and enjoy eating well without the hassle. Simply choose your meals and enjoy fresh, flavor-packed meals delivered straight to your door. So Cribsiders listeners, Factor is offering you a deal. Head to factormeals.com slash Cribsiders50 and use code Cribsiders50 to get 50% off. That's code Cribsiders50 at factormeals.com slash Cribsiders50 to get 50% off. And so Steve, can you start us off with our first case from Cashlet Children's? Absolutely. All right. So you're working overnight covering the general pediatric service at your local hospital when you receive a phone call from the emergency department about Jimmy Nephron, a previously healthy three-month-old boy who they would like to admit for poor weight gain and further workup of failure to thrive. Upon reviewing his routine labs, you discover a sodium level of 122. You head to the ED to obtain further history. So Michelle, my question for you is when you're approaching an undifferentiated case of hyponatremia, what questions are you asking when you're taking your history? I think the first thing you need to do is take a step back and think about why do we care about hyponatremia and why does it matter, okay? So we measure sodium and we think about sodium because we care actually about tonicity. This is where people's eyes start to cross a little bit, but this is why we all took physiology and it's really important to think about these concepts. Serum sodium is a marker of osmolality. And remember, osmolality is kind of all of your particles that are in your body and all of your serum. Tonicity is kind of similar. So it's all of the particles, but it's only those that are osmotically active. Okay. And so that distinction becomes really important when we start to think about this. So for example, when we think about our equation, when we think about osmolality, the major factor there is sodium. The equation is two times sodium because it is the major factor. We also have glucose and we also have urea in there as well. Urea is not an active osmol. So it contributes to your osmolality, but it does not actually contribute to your tonicity. When you're worried about tonicity, we want to make sure that obviously everything's in balance, that we have this homeostasis and equilibrium. What are some of the reasons that this might get out of whack? Why are we, why would a, especially a three month old in this case, have a condition where their tonicity is abnormal and and maybe why is that worrisome? Yeah, so this is this case is a really good kind of amalgamation of a lot of the things that we see. We'll go through kind of a step-by-step approach when we think about how I approach hyponatremia. And really nephrology is all about having step-by-step approaches with branching diagrams. It's not actually that hard. It's just about having a process. But when I'm thinking about this patient and I'm walking down to the emergency department, there's kind of two pieces I want to put together, okay? The first is to figure out acute versus chronic. And that kind of changes the way that I'm approaching this patient. So I want to know a little bit about their past medical history, their birth history. Is this a child who is chronically ill that has been on multiple medications, has been admitted to the hospital? Or is this a patient who was well until earlier today? And that's going to help us kind of frame out some of our potential causes. And then common things being common, I'm going to want to know a little bit about kind of the acute 
medical history or the history of present illness. So has this child been vomiting? Have they had decreased intake? Um, is there something else that's changed over the past couple of days to hours even that may have preceded his presentation? Excellent. And for our child, um, let's say that as far as you know, he, you know, he was born relatively healthy, that this is the first time it was really a workup because of a failure to thrive and poor weight gain, but otherwise seemingly healthy, no major issues. What are the kind of things that are, are coming up in your head as possible causes of hyponatremia? So common things being common, I'm thinking about dehydration. Dehydration can be a common cause of hyponatremia. We'll talk a little bit later about volume status and how that kind of plays into how we think about hyponatremia. Um, but that's one of the major kind of things on my potential hit list. The other thing I often think about, particularly in babies who are not in control of what is going into them, is formula mixing. So in a baby this age, when I am worried about a dysnatremia, either hyponatremia or hypernatremia, I'm usually quite worried about what they are taking in because that's not usually something that's in their control and they don't have the ability to kind of, they may sense their thirst, but they can't control their osmolality or their tonicity with kind of a normal response, which might be drinking more water or drinking less water. You know, the question that I had is aside from, you know, sort of acuity and past medical history, while you're walking down to the emergency department, are there any other things that are on your mind in terms of red flags that you want to make sure that you hit every time you take a history of a patient that comes in with hyponatremia? So some of this will depend on where we're at and kind of thinking about our branching causes of hyponatremia. And some of that we'll get to in a little bit. But as I differentiate between ADH-dependent and ADH-independent when I think about causes of hyponatremia. But when I'm walking down to the emergency department, the two things probably closest in my mind are, do I believe the sodium is real? which is, I think, the most important thing whenever you get a lab. Well, not the most important thing, but it's pretty high up there. Is Do I believe this? Is this a true value? And then is this child symptomatic? So we need to think about symptoms because that's going to change the urgency and the kind of magnitude of our, our response at this time. And, you know, for Sam, uh, what are some of the symptoms of uh, hyponatremia? <laughs> So we're just on a podcast right now, and I think Justin's <laughs> pimping me. But um, but I think I think I'm going to defer this one to Michelle, the expert, and see what she has to say. No, I'm in for for her to yeah, explain he, to yeah, Sam. To you, man. Uh, but the, the joke works in a lot of ways. So the, I'm I'm fine with that interpretation as well. So I think mostly about irritability and neurologic changes. You know, the big one we worry about is seizures, particularly if this is an acute change. So one of the the differentiations when we think about why we worry about changes in sodium is because of that movement of water in and out of tissues. And so I'll probably say this several times, but remember, serum sodium is actually a reflection of your water balance. Mm. Okay. This is telling us about the amount of water relative to the amount of solutes in the body. And so when we think about acute versus chronic changes, it also tells us how long the cells in the body have gotten used to this change. Um, and if it's very acute, the likelihood that a child is going to be symptomatic from acute hyponatremia is much higher. I think it's time that we really hear about the system that you've been talking about, ADH on, ADH off. We got to hear more about it. Steve, would you mind uh, taking us through a little bit more of the case then? 
Absolutely. So in discussing with parents, you learned that the patient was born at term, 38 weeks via uh, spontaneous vaginal delivery, and that mom received normal prenatal care without any complications during pregnancy or delivery. When you ask the parents about the patient's feeding regimen, they tell you that he's formula fed. And then on further history, you find that due to financial constraints, the parents have been diluting the formula with excessive amounts of water in an effort, in an effort to make their supply last longer. So Michelle, what's your general workup, or in other words, what's your general lab approach to hyponatremia? I think you know a lot of us when we were in medical school, we learned sort of this classical hyponatremia algorithm where it was, you know, get the serum in your nozzles, evaluate volume status, and then see which bucket you fall under. But it sounds like you have a sort of a different approach in determining whether or not that patient's ADH is sort of on versus off, so to speak. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So before we even get there, the first thing we need to do is determine whether this is true hyponatremia or just a hyponatremia that we're seeing for some other reason. Those are often referred to as pseudo-hyponatremias, but I think it's important to think about those and how we differentiate. So I think I said before, the first thing I would do is repeat the serum sodium. When I have them repeat that lab, I'm also going to have them get me a serum osms as well. And so what that will allow us to do is kind of validate our assumption that the sodium is actually moving in the same direction as the osmolality and the tonicity. Uh, one question. So when you're repeating it with an osm, now my lab does this weird thing where it does this calculated osm that comes with the lab. Can I not use that or do I really have to check it like specifically? I'm so glad you asked that question. So you should calculate it, but you should also measure it. Because those things matter and those differences matter when we think about the definition of tonicity, which is things that are osmotically active in the serum. So the kind of three buckets we need to put kids into is based on their serum osms. And we'll pretend that Cashlack has a lab that gets us our serum osms back very, very quickly because that is every nephrologist's yeah. dream. <laughs> so the first thing that we really need to look at is what our osms are. So the first bucket of patients I think are the, the easiest to think about are those with a normal serum osm. So a normal measured serum osm is somewhere around 285, okay? And if you have a patient who has a normal osm and a low serum sodium, what you're seeing is not actually low serum sodium. You're actually seeing a lab problem. So what the problem is there is that the machines measure in sodium per plasma volume but then they report it out as sodium per plasma water. And there's an assumption that plasma water and plasma volume are in kind of a normal equilibrium, okay? And there are some patients where that assumption is not true. And so I think this is a great huge pearl already that, you know, as you mentioned, the sodium is really just a proxy for the osms. And so if you're, you're seeing hyponatremia, check the osms to see is this really a tonicity problem? And then we see if, if the osmolality is normal. And if so, we start thinking about these pseudo-hyponatremias. Just so you're saying that there's these false and true hyponatremias based on the osms. And I know that some of the false hyponatremias, I know terms like people say pseudo-hyponatremia, and I've also heard like fictitious hyponatremia. Could you at least go through that a little bit? Because then I think it might help everyone understand what's going on. What do you call it when the nurse draws off the IV line? Nephrologist <laughs> mad at <it. laughs> 
So, um, you know, some of this is just terminology, right? So I have heard factitious and pseudohyponatremia used in exchange. Uh-huh. Um, you know, some of the things that cause this are basically things that cause too much solute in the body. So things like hyperlipidemia. The other one we see it a lot in is kids who have too much protein in their body. So this is less common in pediatrics than adults. You know, adults get like some of these other conditions. Kids, really the only condition we see it or I see it in is IVIG administration. But those patients can have artificially lowered serum sodium. And it's not that they are hyponatremic. It's truly a lab error. The other kind of non-true hypernatremia, which I think we should just briefly touch on is those with an elevated serum osms. Okay, so those patients with elevated serum osms are slightly different. They have hypertonic hyponatremia, and that is because they have other osmotically active factors that are actually driving water out into the plasma volume. So they are truly hyponatremic, but it is because of something else, not because of the amount of water in their body. This is like when you'd go back to the BMP and realize the glucose is 400. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So this is a patient that has a glucose of 400. This is a patient that got mannitol or radiocontrast. Usually these things are pretty evident from the history and usually sort themselves out pretty quickly. I know that when we have like a hyponatremia with a really high glucose, we do this like correction for for the sodium with the glucose. I've always wondered when you correct it, are you correcting it so that you feel better that that's what their actual sodium is or that we don't have to worry about what the sodium actually is? It's a combo of both. I think it's so that you know what their sodium would be once you correct their their glucose. But you're going to have to deal with the glucose anyway. And so I think it makes us all feel a little bit better. Gotcha. So can these patients with hypertonic hyponatremia also become just as symptomatic as a child who has true hypotonic hyponatremia? I've never seen someone get symptomatic because they have some other cause, but it is true hyponatremia. So they certainly could have shifts. Okay. All right. Let's talk about the big one, hypotonic hyponatremia. This is where everything comes out. This is where all the algorithms come out. This is where all the labs come out. So say we did repeat that sodium, say it was actually low as we had just documented of 122 and say that serumosm also is quite low. Sorry, we didn't give you a number, but we can get one shortly. What's our next steps? So this is where my approach might be different than what you learned in med school. And what I try and do here is differentiate between ADH-independent states and ADH-dependent states. We will eventually get to assessing volume status, but, you know, I'm a kidney person. I like to think about what the kidney is trying to do and give the kidney credit. So I try and think about whether ADH is turned on or whether this is an ADH-independent phenomenon. This is the one that if people go back to the wonderful hyponatremia episode over on our sister podcast, The Curbsiders, I feel Joel Toth said something like he really hates that the hormone is labeled after something it doesn't do. I feel like he, he said something like ADH, he, he considers it the adds hydration to the body hormone. Is that right? How do you like to think about it? I um I am also a student of Joel. So <laughs> I um I like that as well. I find it challenging to think of a hormone defined by something it doesn't do. So ADH adds hydration to the body. Nice, nice. That is a nice pearl. So what we need to think about here is what the ADH is trying to do. So ADH adds hydration to the body. So if we have a urine osm, that is telling us what the ADH is trying to do. 
So a low urine osm tells us that this is an ADH independent state. So ADH is not turned on. If we have a high urine osms, that's telling us that the ADH is turned on. So this is an ADH dependent state. When we start thinking about ADH-dependent causes of hyponatremia, we'll start to think about whether it's appropriate or inappropriate and think about volume status, but that's kind of the first distinction I make. Now, you don't even need a urine osm here. So you actually can get a lot of this information just with the urine-specific gravity because that's going to tell you a lot in terms of kind of what is going in terms of the concentration abilities of the kidney. And so, Michelle, just because for our listeners, I try to make it as clear and obvious as possible. So what are our cutoffs for uh, ADH? So say we get uh, say we get a urine osm, what do you think is a cutoff for a high and a low? And say a spec graph, what do you think is a cutoff for a high and low? So with ADH independent, my usual cutoff is a urine osm less than about 200. And usually the spec graph you're going to see on that is something like 1005 or sometimes it'll be about 1010. We like to call that a sosthenuric just because we like to use fancy words. But those are kind of the numbers you're going to see. Now, ADH dependent, you're going to see a much more concentrated urine. So that might be 1020, 1025, even, you know, as kind of dark as it gets, right? 1030. And you're usually going to see an ADH that is above 250. Depending on the severity and how long this is going on, sometimes you're seeing 400, 500, up to 800, but you're going to see a higher number there. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Sorry. Didn't mean to interrupt. You may please, please continue. So once you've kind of made that distinction, you just have to think a little bit about what the kidneys are trying to do and whether they're being successful. Okay. We got to give kidneys credit. They're pretty smart. Um, and sometimes they're trying really, really hard to return to homeostasis and they just can't do it. And maybe even to take a step back even more. So the, can you walk us through the urinosm you mentioned being low as having an ADH off? And with a low urinosm, it means you're having low tonicity or low osms in there. And so you're kind of peeing out extra free water. Is that right? And so if the body is trying to conserve free water, you wouldn't expect that. Is that the right way to think of it as far as the urinosms and and whether you're peeing out water or not? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that's a really great way of thinking about it. I, I even try and simplify it even more. So when we think about hyponatremia, it's just too much water in the body, okay? And everything is a balance in nephrology, right? In and out. So when you have too much water in the body, it's for really one of three reasons, right? You either have too much water in, you can't get your water out because your kidneys aren't working, or you have normal water balance and your ADH is out of whack. Those are really the three situations you have. It's not that complicated. And so really when you have a very low specific gravity, most of the time your kidneys are trying really hard to get rid of the amount of excess water in the body and they just can't do it for a couple of different reasons. So in this case, you know, you've talked a lot about ADH and ADH-mediated disease. We're definitely going to talk about, hey, what drives ADH? You know, why should ADH be on? Why should ADH be off? I think we're going to get into that in a second. Just before we do that, um, I was wondering, lots of other people tend to send urine sodium with that right off the bat. So say we got a urine test and we got urine sodium. But first, I know this is a double question, so I apologize. But the first, are there any other urine tests that you'll send right off the bat with that? And if not, it includes urine. Would you mind explaining a little bit about the urine sodium? And then we can get into what it's like to do ADH? Yeah. So, you know, I think that, first of all, there aren't any 
other big tests that I will send right off the bat, unless there's something that is screaming at me from the When we talk about ADH dependent, you know, sometimes depending on the patient's history, I'll send thyroid, I'll send cortisol just to get those cooking. But those really are very history dependent. And really when I'm thinking about more ADH dependent causes of hyponatremia, you know, when we think about ADH independent causes of hyponatremia, there's a couple things that are usually on my list. So this is a patient that has true hyponatremia. So a low serum osms, hyponatremia, so a low serum sodium, and then a low urine osms as well. So this is where the history can be really helpful. One of the most common causes here is primary polydipsia. So these patients are just drinking lots and lots of water. We see this in several different clinical situations, but basically the kidney is trying really hard to excrete everything and just cannot keep up with the amount of water that a patient is taking in. The other two I always think about because I'm a nephrologist is something that the adults call tea and toast. There's also this kind of beer potomania, which is basically where you have low osmotic load. I refer to this as the toddler diet because you can also see this in kids, even though it is much less common. So just to take a step back and think about what the role of the kidney is. The kidney has to do a lot of things, but one of the things it has to do is get rid of your daily solute load. And your daily solute load has to do with what you're taking in in your diet. And it depends a lot about the type of foods that you're eating. So carbs are basically water and CO2. So they don't contribute very much to your solute load. So if you have a patient that is eating just carbs, like my son, they don't have much of an osmotic load. And they are not going to need to get rid of much of one during the kind of during 24 hours. And that has implications when we think about the amount of urine output that they can drive. So actually my kids who really like ramen with a big MSG packet, it's actually a smart thing for us to do. Is that correct? Because mm -hmm. it adds the os osmotic load so that they can actually pee off enough, enough fluid from all that ramen that's actually just water. So, uh, you know, this gets a little bit in the weeds a little bit fast, but if you think about it, you basically, your usual solute load depends on your weight. So, you know, normal kind of diet, you're taking in about 10 milliosms per day. So say you have like a 20 kilo kid, that's about 200 osms of kind of milliosms of solute they have to get rid of. Now, based on the minimum and the maximum concentrating ability of the kidney, that means that their urine output can range between four liters if it's maximally dilute or about 170, 180, depending on who, how you do the math of concentrated urine, which means as long as they take in between those two amounts, they're going to be able to keep themselves in balance. But if they drink more than four liters, they're going to get hyponatremia. If a kid has a lower solute load, right, they eat just chicken nuggets and carbohydrates all day, they're not going to be able to take in more than about a liter or a liter and a half before they're going to get progressively hyponatremic. So it's important when we're thinking about these patients with hyponatremia to take a good diet history and think about what their solute load is and whether that's actually contributing as well. So what are some other items on the list of your differential for ADH-independent causes of hyponatremia? So really, the big one that we think about that I think is probably the most fitting in this case is just too much water. It fits with our history really nicely that this is a baby who is probably just getting more water than they are able to excrete because of inappropriate formula mixing. And maybe while we're, you know, I think we have, like you say, a, a good sense of what this case is. We've confirmed the low serum osmality. 
Um, we don't even need a urinosm. Before we, we do give you the urinosm, because we did it, because we're on the ED. We got time. We can order it. <laughs> in a general patient that has ADH independent, or can you just talk about what are the other ADH independent causes of hyponatremia while we kind of wrap up this case? Yeah. So really, these are the things that just cause too much water in and not enough water out. So patients who are just drinking more water than their bodies and their kidneys are able to get rid of in a day are going to develop hyponatremia. So this includes patients who just drink too much water. So what was formerly known as psychogenic polydipsia, um, but is now known primary polydipsia. Um, the other one I always think about is renal failure. So all of our patients with either advanced CKD that are unable to pee uh, a normal amount or those with end-stage kidney disease who are on dialysis will develop hyponatremia as well because they are unable to get rid of the amount of water they are taking in. If you were to just check the serum sodiums of all of our dialysis patients at cash Lab, they're all going to be mid-low 130s just because they have more water in their body than salt. Beautiful. And so for our case, we know he has more water than salt because he's drinking dilute milk. We have a sense that this is going to be ADH independent because we do not need to add hydration. Steve, can you tell us what uh, what the lab results turned out to be? Absolutely. So we have the uh, emergency department send us a, a serinosm, a urinosm, and a urine sodium. And they come back an hour later showing a serumosm of 265, a urinosm of 120, and a urine sodium of 13. That pretty much says it all. So, you know, all of those labs really fit nicely in the algorithm. This is a baby who has ADH independent causes of their true hyponatremia. That helps us know exactly what caused it, but it also lets us know how we can fix it. And as we start to correct the sodium in this baby, this is a baby that I'm not as worried about my rate of correction because I don't actually have to worry about ADH being a factor or a mitigating factor in my sodium rise. And so let's talk about treatment. You know, we're, we have them on our service. How do we treat? Um, how frequently do we need to monitor the sodiums? What's this child's hospital course going to look like? So this is where your history questions that you asked at the beginning are really important. Because if this is a baby where they just ran out of formula 24 hours ago and have been diluting just today, you're going to treat this child very differently than if this is a child where they have been chronically mixing inappropriately for the last week or two. Because the rate of correction is going to be slightly different and how worried you are about bringing the sodium up too quickly is going to be different. So the first thing you have to think about once you've confirmed it, once you kind of have a sense of your diagnosis and you have a sense of your management is how urgently do you need to fix the sodium? And so your first question is, is this a patient who is symptomatic or asymptomatic? So if this is an asymptomatic patient, there is no urgency to fix it immediately. And you actually may cause more problems by fixing it too quickly than fixing it too slowly. Now, on the other hand, if this is a patient who is altered, who is seizing, then there is some urgency and you're going to want to intervene quickly to raise the serum sodium to a point where you're not having symptoms anymore. And so presuming in this case that this is, you know, a somewhat chronic, maybe two to three weeks of this dilute feeding, as an example, how often are we checking and what are we concerned about with overcorrecting? So the usual rule of thumb, and I will caveat that most of the pediatric studies here draw from the adult literature, is that you want to go slowly. And so in a patient like this that is not symptomatic, 
you're going to want to raise your serum sodium slowly. And the literatures will say somewhere between 0.5 and 1 per hour, but you really don't want to go faster than 10 in a day. And what I do is actually aim a lot lower than that, knowing that we may actually correct faster. So I do all of my math. And remember, what you're doing is you're actually correcting the amount of excess water you have. Many of the online calculators are going to tell you how much sodium to give. But really what you want to think about is how much extra water is there and where do I need this child's balance to be to get them back to where they're at. So what I'll do in a situation like this is think about what do I need to do in order to slowly increase this child's sodium by about five to six milliequivalents per day. And that means monitoring closely. And in this child, it probably means just putting them back on formula and monitoring and letting their kidney do what it's supposed to. And so what I will do in situations like this is usually every four or every six hour sodium checks and then put them back on their formula and watch really closely. And so what happens when they go right back on their formula, their body says, oh my God, I have plenty of too much free water and here's some solute with which to pee it out and I just pee out the whole thing. Are we supposed to be giving them dilute formula as we try to do this or how do we stop this from overcorrecting? So this is where you remember that the kidney is a very, very smart organ and you can use ADH actually in the situation to your benefit. And so, you know, if you give a child their kind of appropriately dilute formula, you're going to start to correct at a rate that is somewhere where you want it to be. Um, so I would put this child just back on their normal formula and monitor closely. And if you're going too fast, I would pause. But, you know, I think sometimes we try and get a little too complicated in the way we do things. And I would just go back to normal formula and see how it goes. So as far as discharge planning is, do we need a, a stone cold perfect sodium level? Or if we see a generally safe rate of rise with their feeding, can we just assume that uh, we trust the kidneys, we trust the family to, you know, continue to appropriately dilute the, the formula going forward? This is an outpatient issue. Oh, this is a kid that I would admit. And it's someone I would watch until their sodium has normalized. Now, I think that this is another one where you need to think about all the factors as well. So you need to make sure that they have plenty of formula to go home. They have all of the education. And this is where kind of all of our wraparound services, we can fix the hyponatremia pretty quick, but we need to make sure that we fix the other things so this doesn't happen again as well. Did we actually clarify what happens if we do overcorrect? What are the things we're looking out for? Oh, and the, the actual physiology of that? Like what happens if their sodium goes back too fast? Or goes high too fast. Yeah. So remember, sodium is just basically a marker of how much water there is in certain compartments of the body. So what we are worried about when we correct too much is that the water is going to shift. Um, and the kind of complication that we worry about in this situation is something called central pontymyelinysis or osmotic deosmolation. And the problem here is basically when water shifts too quickly, you can get shrinking and swelling of the cells and you get cerebral edema, which can have really serious and significant morbidity. So no outpatient then? No, this is a kid, you know, sometimes the question is actually, is this a kid that should go to the ICU? Right. Um, you know, I don't think this is like, a, should this kid go home? Um, this is a question of where can you do Q4 hour sodiums and titrate fluids if you need to. So since you did bring it up a little bit, talking about going to the ICU and doing quick checks, and you started talking about fluids and 
So say this was a kid who was more symptomatic and you're not just giving them back their formulas and you want to give them some sort of fluid. Can you describe exactly what type of fluids we use? I've also heard like if you use the wrong fluid, it may actually make them worse. Like, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the risk of making things worse is much lower in these ADH independent causes of hyponatremia. In situations like this where I'm treating hyponatremia, I'm often using 3% because that actually has the biggest kind of bang for the buck in terms of the amount of salt you're giving. But most of the time, remember the underlying problem in most of these is actually too much water as opposed to too little salt. So actually sometimes what you want to do is give a patient less as opposed to give them more of something else. Gotcha. I always just feel like the 3%, you know, the, the hypertonic, the hot sauce, it's always behind lock and key from the pharmacist and the nephrologist. They won't let me touch it. Well, and- it's it's one of those things where, you know, hypertonic, it's a dangerous medication. If you Not to say that you don't know what you're doing with it, but um, it's a medication that you need to make sure you know what you're doing. You know, it has a really high amount of salt. You know, 513 milliequivalents is quite a bit. And, you know, we use it in very small aliquots when we have a patient with symptomatic acute hyponatremia. And I really think that's kind of the place where it's the most helpful, um, as opposed to kind of restricting or otherwise thinking about what we're doing. And um, I, I do. Have, I'm sorry, guys. I, I don't mean to, to keep on asking questions, but um, I'm sort of interested in these cases that we have are fairly symptomatic. We're trying to do some rapid correction. We're doing fluids. And we did talk a little bit about overcorrection and that we're checking it closely. And Sam talked a little bit about you know, if you start giving fluids, then people start diuresing. I've heard that there's some discussion like, yes, we use all these formulas. And the reason why we're checking is because the formulas are sort of based on like being a closed system. So once you start diuresing, um, then it's no longer a closed system. You have to recalculate. But there are ways around that, correct? I'm trying to lead on to asking about DDAVP clamps. So, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, you know, I think It's tough to talk about a little bit because we haven't talked about ADH, but, you know, one of the problems as you start to fix your hyponatremia is that you actually can make things get harder because ADH turns on and turns off. And that's really not something that you can control. So there is a way that you basically can completely control situations. And you know us nephrologists, we like to control everything possible. So there is, and I will caveat that I've actually never done this in a patient, but you can actually give DDAVP as like a clamp to completely control your ADH. And then that way you and not the patient are completely in control of the level of sodium repletion. So you basically can control things completely because you have the ability to turn on and off their ability to reabsorb water. Cool. Very cool. I had one final wrap of just talking about hypertonic saline, correct me if I'm wrong, but that is, you mentioned such a big decision in part that requires a central line as opposed to a peripheral line. Is that correct or am I misremembering that? So I believe in emergent situations, you can give 3% Hmm. peripherally in a very small dose. So, you know, in these situations, what you're really trying to do is just raise the serum sodium enough that you stop the symptoms. And so really that number is somewhere between 3 and 5 milliequivalents. And you can get there with a pretty small dose. So we're not talking about long-term infusion, which you certainly would want central access for. But emergently in the emergency department, when you have a seizing child, it's something that you can push through a peripheral. This is great. I'm very glad I asked. Great. Team, any other questions about our 
ADH independent cause of hyponatremia case, or should we move on for our next patient who's been patiently waiting? Yeah, let's move on. Let's do it. All right, Steve, hit us. All right, let's talk about our second case here. So we have Morton Henley. This is a five-year-old girl who presents with three days of cough, fever, and progressive shortness of breath. Vital signs reveal hypoxemia necessitating supplemental FiO2. Her chest x-ray reveals a left lower lobe consolidation thought to be indicative of community-acquired pneumonia. And she's therefore started on uh, ampicillin for treatment. Routine labs obtained in the emergency department reveal a sodium level of 128. You decide to further work up her hyponatremia. And labs show serum osmolality of 267 a urine osmolality of 400, and a urine sodium of 49. So Michelle, based on these labs, can you walk us through sort of the ADH-dependent causes of hyponatremia? Yeah, so just to kind of review and kind of recap where we're at, remember, the first thing what we're going to do is decide whether this is true hyponatremia or not. So this kind of passes that first test, right? We have hypoosmolar hyponatremia. Then we want to figure out, based on our urine ability, what the kidney is doing, right? So this is a kidney that is doing something, okay? So this is a kidney that is responding by revving up its ADH secretion. So we have what we would call an increased ADH or an ADH-dependent cause of our hyponatremia. And that brings us down a very different pathway. And this is the one that usually people start to wring their hands, call nephrology, and start crying. But really, it's kind of the same pathway. We just need to think about kind of buckets of things and start to break it down in terms of what we think the causes are here. Great. So we have an elevated urine osm, which means that the urine is concentrated and so we are adding the hydration for ADH. And so in this, what we presume is ADH-mediated or have confirmed is ADH-mediated, what are those buckets or what's the differential approach to an ADH-mediated cause of hyponatremia? So I think the thing we need to think about here is what stimulates ADH. So why does ADH get turned on? And there's two things that do it. And one of them is your osmolality change, okay? And so that's really kind of one stimuli. The other is volume. And volume always rules. So in a patient that is volume deplete, whether they are truly volume deplete or their kidneys think that they are volume deplete, that is going to take precedent even if the osmolality doesn't actually dictate that the ADH is on. So really what you need to do next is start thinking about, you know, you're getting a little bit of the history from the patient. You're starting to think about kind of what these causes are. But really what I do at this point is start thinking about what their volume status is. Because I know ADH is up and I need to think about what their volume status is and is it appropriate for their ADH to be up or not. So uh, in thinking about this case, you know, just dehydration in general seems like a reasonable thing where you might have stimulation of ADH, or you could have potentially inappropriate ADH stimulation in the setting of, of illness. Is that fair? Yeah. So the real, the three buckets I use are based on volume status, right? You have hypovolemic, euvolemic, and then hypervolemic. And those are really the three buckets that you want to do the best you can based on your history and your physical exam to try and understand where a patient is. We can use some laboratory testing and some other things down the road to help us as well. But that's kind of your first test is to try and figure out what bucket you think this patient is in. 
And often we have a really tough time telling the difference between someone who is hypovolemic and euvolemic. That is our favorite thing. We can ask seven different nephrologists and seven cardiologists, and we'll get a different answer from everybody. Um, so this is pretty hard to do. Do you have any recommendations? Every nephrologist <laughs> loves weight. That's my favorite mm -hmm. thing, particularly because pediatric patients know their weights. Their parents usually know their weights. And the nice thing about the metric system is that weight really counts nicely in terms of liters. So if you're down a kilo, you're down a liter. And that really can help you in terms of the acute changes in patients. I really like weight. Some pieces of the exam, particularly vital signs, can be particularly helpful in volume deplete patients. So I'm thinking about tachycardia in particular. Mm -hmm. Depending on the age of the patient, sometimes skin turner can be helpful. But really, vital sign changes and weight are the two things that I really look at the most on my exam. And do you look at the urine sodium at all? We've been kind of giving you some urine sodiums. So we haven't talked about that much. Do you use that to help in this differential or do you just go for volume status first? If you do volume status first and then we can get to that, we can pause that and you can tell me to pause. But if it's something you use here, would you mind just telling us a little bit more? I use it here a little bit. It honestly depends a little bit on just the order of events, right? So do you have the urine sodium back when you go to see the patient or are you kind of flying blind a little bit? So in cases of hypovolemia, you're usually going to have a low urine sodium. And so having a low urine sodium can kind of help support some of those other exam findings as well. But usually the history is going to be pretty indicative and you're going to have a good sense of kind of where things are at. So one question I have is I, I think I understand why hypovolemia may cause this sort of physiologically, right? So if you have low volume, then your ADH may be kicking in or over kicking in and you're uh, you're trying to add hydration back to your body, so you're a hyponatremic. I think we're going to talk a little bit about euvolemia, so I'm going to skip that for a second. But can you explain to me how hypervolemia causes this abnormal ADH-dependent response? Yeah, so hypervolemia is kind of a misnomer um, because it states a volume excess where the body and the kidneys in particular are fooled. So these are situations where the patient is total body volume overloaded, but their kidneys aren't seeing that volume. So these are really things like heart failure, liver failure. We don't see this as much as our adult colleagues, but cirrhotics will do this quite a bit. But we do see it in patients with hepatorenal syndrome. And then we also will see this in nephrotics as well. So those are really the three big buckets where they're going to be total body volume up, but their kidneys are still not seeing that perfusion as well. And so their kidneys are not appreciating the volume the way that they are in a patient who is usually so let's say this patient, we think this patient's euvolemic right now, um, which is a really, really hard thing to say. But let's give you that this patient is euvolemic. What's your next step? So, you know, this is, this is always really tricky in terms of when nephrology is involved. So the big bucket here in terms of euvolemic hyponatremia is SIADH, right? Everyone is always worried about SIADH. Now, the other thing that often helps is that they usually think these patients or people usually think these patients are dehydrated or volume down, and they often will get a bolus of fluid and their serum sodium goes down more. And so that can sometimes help us just as much because if you are trying to fix a patient that you think is hypovolemic and your serum sodium does not get better, you're actually getting a decent clue that the ADH may not actually be appropriate. It might actually be inappropriate. So SIADH is the big one I think about here because SIADH is actually really common in pediatric patients and particularly in pediatric hospitalized patients when we talk about some of the causes. The other two things that are always on the back of my mind are adrenal insufficiency. 
So these are patients, especially if they have a history that fit, I'm going to send a cortisol and then thyroid issues as well. And so I'm often thinking about a TSH, particularly if this is a teenager that has other symptoms. Now, are we okay with just a random cortisol or do we have to like wait till the next day, get that like AM cortisol? Like, mm. that's why I always wonder, like, get a cortisol. I was like, well, that was like two in I the afternoon after we rounded. Because, you know, it's either going to be flagrantly abnormal and then you'll call endocrinology and ask for additional help or it'll be fine. So I usually will just send a random um, and then we'll call my endocrinology friends for help if I'm confused at all. Love it. So I have the classic pediatric question. This is some nuance where, where, where there's some, some difficulties here. So you had mentioned that, okay, we get some bolus, you know, say we get a 20 milliliter per kilo bolus because we think uh, that this person was hypovolemic and that urine osm didn't budge at all. And the only thing that happened was our sodium kept dropping. Now, here's the question. How do you tell whether it's SIADH and it's not going to get better or you just didn't give enough volume to turn off the ADH response? The same way that like we ask ourselves for some of our breathing kids for asthma, for example, you know, did I give them beta agonist because, and do I give them a whole hour of continuous beta agonist because it didn't work? Or do I just give them the one beta agonist and it's, ah, it didn't work, so it's not asthma. You know, so how do I tell whether I should give more? My real problem wasn't that I, I was SADH. My problem was I just didn't give enough. So usually in kids that are that volume deplete, it's going to be a little bit more clinically apparent, right? Um, so, you know, these hypovolemic kids have either massive GI losses or they're on diuretic. Like, these are usually not subtle in terms of the degree of volume depletion. And if they are kind of a subtle volume depletion, then one 20 per kilo bolus is going to be enough to correct them to the point where you're going to see that ADH change. So usually my rule of thumb is that you should see some improvement in your serum sodium. The asterisk is depending what fluid you give, right? Um, if you're giving you know, a fluid that has a higher amount of water as opposed to salt in it, you could see worsening. But if you're giving normal saline and a patient is volume deplete, you should start to see improvement in your serum sodium. And this is reassuring in that it sounds like one of the best physical exams to determine if someone's hypovolemia versus euvolemia is to give them a bolus and then follow up the sodium. What risk is that? Can can you give us assurance that if you, I feel like it's like house, let's just treat them and see what happens. But I think that is very reassuring. And as someone you know who I feel like a lot of times you might not see hyponatremia, and then all of a sudden it does, and you're like, this is something I should feel very comfortable treating. This is bread and butter pediatrics. I haven't seen it in a little bit. You give the bolus, the sodium goes down a little bit. Can we get some reassurance, you know, from Dr. Starr that this is this is okay, this is kind of the traditional thing? Or can you give us some caution of why it can be dangerous to rely on giving a bolus and and how shooting someone's sodium down in the setting of SIADH, how worrisome is that? So it's a great question. So this kind of gets back to what we've talked about before about fluids being a drug, right? So this is why you don't just give fluids and then not ever check a BNP again, right? So this is why you need to keep an eye on the serum sodium. Hyponatremia is the most common electrolyte abnormality in hospitalized children. And it's why we have the fluid recommendations from the AAP that we have. So you really need to be thoughtful about it. If you're giving a bolus for a patient that you think is hypovolemic that has low serum sodium, you got to follow it up and make sure it responded the way you think it is going to. Now, I will reassure you, you're not going to see a dramatic 
decrease in your serum sodium with one or two boluses. This is something that's going to be subtle if it is a patient that is euvolemic and has hyponatremia in the setting of inappropriate ADH. I feel very reassured. I appreciate that. <laughs> and in this patient, you know, let's say again, we're, we're feeling confident that they're euvolemic. They are acutely ill with pneumonia. We might be thinking, okay, I'm, I'm thinking SIADH. That's the presumptive diagnosis. What's our game plan for this person's monitoring? How frequently are we checking their labs? Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the things before we talk about that is just to quickly review some of the things that can induce inappropriate ADH. Okay. Great. So, like I said, SIADH is actually pretty common in hospitalized children. And that's because a lot of the reasons that kids get hospitalized are actually ADH triggers. So this child has a respiratory illness. Basically, anything that causes a respiratory illness is a trigger of ADH. And this is all inappropriate, right? This isn't something that should be happening either based on the osmolality or based on the volume status of the patient. Positive pressure ventilation asthma, pneumonia are all big stimuli of ADH, okay? Other things as well, so surgery, pain, emesis, anxiety, tell me if you ever have a hospitalized patient who has one of those, are all also triggers as well. So there's a lot of things that bring patients into the hospital, make them NPO to the point where they might need fluids or bring them to a point where you might check a serum sodium that will make them at higher risk of having SIADH. So in addition to some of those kind of medical conditions, there's also medications that can cause ADH as well. The big one, the big category I think about is SSRIs. Not a lot of our patients are on those, but SSRIs certainly can cause those. Some seizure medications as well. And then, you know, HIV medications are one that we don't run into very much, but I know um, from talking to the adult folks that that is a pretty common cause um, in patients who are on HIV medications. So you got to think about meds. And then the other thing that you just need to keep in the back of your head is that there are more dangerous causes of SIADH, right? These are all pretty transient things that you treat the pneumonia on this child, things will get better. You treat the pain or the vomiting, things will get better. But CNS lesions can also cause this as well. So it's always worth keeping that in the back of your head. If this is not something that is getting better as you treat the underlying cause, you may need to go looking a little bit further. I mean, this is perfect to talk about treatment. So let's kind of get into that. Justin had asked about lab monitoring and lab monitoring for what? What are we doing for treating? So how do you think we're going to get this patient better? So this is a patient where we may just need to be patient and we may just need to be slow and think about treating their underlying disease, knowing that we want their ADH stimuli, which is inappropriate to slowly, slowly get better. Um, so this is a patient when we think about what is causing their hyponatremia, they just have too much water compared to everything else in their body. And so what we want to do is slowly over time decrease the amount of free water. And that just means giving them less fluid in than they are putting out. And the easiest way to do that is to fluid restrict patients. I mean, it's easy for me to say that it's the easiest thing because patients don't love it very much. But if you have less going into a patient than is coming out, then they will slowly get themselves back into balance. Can I ask, you know, this a question that I've never really thought of until having this discussion is... Is there any sense of just tolerating hyponatremia in the setting of acute illness? Like, why are we even trying to correct 
when we assume that eventually the illness will recover, the kidneys will go back to homeostasis, they're not acutely symptomatic. So long as it's not worsening, why not just let it ride? Why are we even, you know, restricting these patients? Is there any? You know, I think it's, so it's a really good question. So the, you know, the question is, what are we worried about? And so in these patients, I actually will tolerate slightly lower serum sodiums. You know, I don't love it when they start getting lower than 130, but, you know, I'm usually okay with the serum sodium that is slightly lower because most of our complications are actually from being too aggressive with our correction. And so these patients, I will be somewhat ginger. I'll fluid restrict them most of the time and just monitor, especially if we know that their pneumonia is getting better and we expect the ADH to get better over time as well. The other option that we don't actually do as much in the setting of SAADH is you can actually help a patient get rid of more water. Okay. So we sometimes, nephrologists or general pediatricians as well, sometimes will give these patients salt tabs. I don't know if you've ever wondered about how that actually works. Back when I was a resident, I used to actually think it was just the salt was fixing the hyponatremia. What you actually are doing with these things is you're increasing their solute load. So remember back to when we said patients have to get rid of their solute load every day. And if they have a higher solute load, they need to pee more. And so if you give a patient more solute load, whether that is just salt tabs, sometimes you, especially in adults with chronic SIADH, they'll use urea. So there's oral urea that you can prescribe as well. And what those are doing is basically just driving the body to get rid of more water with solute. So you can use some of these other kind of mechanisms as well and use the kidney to your advantage to get rid of things. So I can understand some of the theory now. So with SIDH, I either water restrict and another option I can be is try to give a little more solute. Can you help us with some numbers here? Like how much do I water restrict? Do I keep them at two liters or one liter or a half liter or 25 cc's or, you know, how much, how much salt tabs do I give them? Do I say, Hey, just sprinkle a bunch of salt in your fries when it comes up. Like, can you give me some roundabout ways? And I know it may make a difference based on like the size of the child and stuff. I, I mean, I just sort of want to know sort of yeah, rule so of thumbs. I don't know if there's great guidance on this. I can tell you what I do. Usually what I'll do in terms of, so my first move in these patients is just to water restrict. I usually don't move to giving extra salt or anything like that unless I am really stuck and this is a patient that is going to have chronic SIADH. Um, so those are not maneuvers that I will do for a patient with pneumonia like this, that this is going to get better in a couple of days or a week or so. And so you want to water restrict and you want to actually just look at what they have had out and give them less than they have had in. I know that seems like a pretty simple answer. Some people will use 60% as kind of their starting point. I don't think there's any great evidence for that, but I've seen people throw that number around. Usually what I do is I look at the past couple of days, look at what they have had out, and then try and hit a number of in that is slightly less than that. Because really the, the goals of treatment here are to fix the symptoms if they're having any, avoid fixing it too fast, and not make it worse. You'll say, I, I didn't actually say make it better as one of the three things there. And really, so what we're trying to do is slowly, slowly correct things. And really, there's no impetus in an asymptomatic patient of fixing things overnight, which is really hard for a nephrologist. We really like to fix numbers, but this is a situation where slow is much better than fast. Now, I, I really love that sort of way you're talking about like 
granted, if we get good urine output, like able like good good measures from from the floor, uh, trying to figure out like just make sure they have less in than out. I think that makes a lot of sense to a lot of people. I just wanted to ask a question. You had mentioned right before about um, sodium, sorry, uh, yeah, about sodium chloride tablets and about urea tablets. So I've seen in actually different institutions been to people using different things for for giving solute. Is there anything I need to know that I didn't know about one versus the other? Or is this just a completely stylistic thing or one tastes better than the other? I heard one tastes like lemon. So is that it? <laughs> lemon. Yeah. So urea is a lemon lime flavor. <laughs> It's not that bad. I've tried it. Um, it's tolerable. It is more expensive. So that may be one of the factors and it isn't always available, particularly in hospital formularies. So it may just be availability. When we're thinking about it from a straight physiology standpoint, it doesn't matter as long as it's something that is solute that is going to drive your kidney to get rid of extra fluid. Both work. I think the important teaching point there is that I used to think you gave the salt just to raise the salt in a patient who was hyponatremic. And really what you're doing is to actually drive more water out. Very cool. I um, wanted to go back to one thing about the the frequency of checking and not overcorrecting. In our first case, that was ADH independent. You mentioned not being too worried about the correction and feeling like things would probably stabilize um, safely and correctly. For a patient like this, where we do know that it's ADH dependent, is this changing the, your concern, changing how frequently you're monitoring? How, how does it change your perception knowing that it's ADH mediated? So the challenge with kids that have, or anybody that has ADH dependent uh, hyponatremia is that things can change and things can change pretty fast. And so you don't know minute to minute what the ADH is doing. And that's a pretty potent stimulus of this. And so there is the possibility. So for example, a hypovolemic patient, if you fix their hypovolemia, their ADH is going to respond pretty quickly, particularly if this is a patient that doesn't have other osmotic stimuli. So you have to be really careful and thoughtful um, in terms of how much you're monitoring. And it's one of the reasons that I'm less aggressive in my repletion approach in these patients, because you don't know how they're going to change and how their ADH is going to change over time. Great. And then maybe one more question on this before we start wrapping up, or we'll see if others have it. But presuming we do some gentle restriction, we do some urea or salt tablets, and we just don't see an improvement, or maybe even slowly is is trending down. What if treatment doesn't work? Do you have a new approach for your differential or for treatment? So you have to worry a little bit about some of the kind of more big and scary things in that situation. So remember, most of our causes of SADH in pediatric patients are going to be reversible, especially if they have something underlying. We do have some patients that whether it's their thyroid or whether it's their adrenals, they're going to continue to be hyponatremic over time. But you do also need to make sure that they don't have a tumor or they don't have some sort of central nervous stimuli that is actually causing this. So if this is something that is not behaving the way it should be with an acute illness and not getting better, you need to broaden your differential and start thinking about, do I need to get imaging? Do I need to get other subspecialties involved to really think about what the cause of this is? Now, in terms of treatment, you know, there are different classes of medication that you can use. You know, pediatric 
chronic hyponatremia is actually not that common, but the Tolvaps, um, so the Vaptans are something that people will use in this situation, but it really depends on your reason to be hyponatremic um, and is not something that I often or ever, quite honestly, reach for for that indication. Any final questions before we wrap up? Sam, Samuel? I, I do have one final question. And as we start to after the ask kind of the rapid fire question section here. So you're also very much a, a neonatal nephrologist. So as we've learned in your previous episodes, the neonatal kidney is not as mature. And so what should we expect differently along the lines if we're dealing with infants? What should we expect differently as far as their sodiums, their serum sodiums, their serum osms? Like what should we be thinking with a non-mature kidney? That's a great question. So the biggest thing to think about with the kidney is its ability to concentrate in babies. And so babies are not going to be able to really mount this degree of concentration, urine, osm response, just because they aren't able to kind of create that gradient in their loop of Henry, and they are less responsive to ADH as well. Now, in babies, we tend not to see these kind of ADH-dependent causes of hyponatremia as much, and we're more likely to see ADH-independent causes, particularly like our first case where they're just getting too much water in, but they are not able to really concentrate their urine as much. So our normal ranges are going to be much lower in terms of our urine osms and their ability to concentrate in terms of their response to ADH. Awesome. And do you have a, uh, you know, we just talked about roughly 200 is less, you know, versus 250 more, you know, that 200, 250 seems like this, you know, the middle ground, but um, that we don't really know. But do you have numbers specifically that we can take when we think of a neonate or how old they should be and what numbers should be? So it depends a little bit on their degree of prematurity. Um, I yeah. tend to slide that number down a little bit and give babies a little bit of extra credit if they can do anything in terms of their ADH responsiveness. So usually it's like 150 is the number I'm thinking about. Nice. If they can get themselves there, then they're probably responding somewhat. Awesome. The only other thing I'll say as we're talking about electrolytes in babies is that, you know, it's not particularly a focus of this, but to remember that that tubular immaturity affects kind of their ability to handle all electrolytes. And so they often will run a higher serum potassium for the same reason, because they're unable to excrete potassium in their distal tubule. So when we think about normal values, we need to think about urine osm, but we also need to think about their ability to get rid of potassium as well. Perfect. And then uh, another follow-up question. If anyone has rapid fire questions, we're trying to, we're going to, we're almost done here. So I'm just, I'm just going to ask these questions until the cows come home. So the urine sodium, we talked a little bit about the urine sodium being able to, that, Hey, if it's really, really low, maybe this type of bulimia, but obviously we can do two things. We can do our classic physical exam, Justin, where we give them a bolus of fluids and see if they were hypovolemic, which I love, by the way. I'm just going to throw that out there. Great um, yeah, exactly. Or or the second thing, of course, is we have a history, right? We're like, all right, you've been puking for like 17 days. I know that you're probably hypovolemic. Is there anything that we actually need the urine sodium for? Or is this thing just something that could be helpful, but honestly is not really going to change our management? I think it's that. I mean, I yeah. honestly don't most often I'm relying on my urine osms and everything else. And urine sodium is often confirming what I think it is. Um, the only time it really is helpful is when it's SADH, but I'm not convinced. And it sometimes can help me feel more confident in my diagnosis if it's elevated. And, and that's if it's like super high. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just uh, so I'm just looking for validation. Thank you very much. That the only test that I happen to order also is a serum osm and a urine osm. And so this makes me feel like I can still be a doctor today. So thank you. Along those same lines, Michelle, if you are getting a urine sodium and a urine osm and they're discordant, 
are you just relying on the urinosum at that point? I usually am. I feel like that's a better marker when I think about ADH. Um, And there's so many things that can affect the urine sodium. I just find it a little bit more of an accurate measure. Nice. Nice. These are great pearls. I know. I'm sorry to put them in the end, everybody. Hopefully, you're all still listening. (laughs) We'll just tell people to listen to the episode in reverse. (laughs) Like Memento or the Seinfeld episode. Yeah, throwback. Michelle, it's, it's every time you're on, it's so amazing. Honestly, like it's just fantastic every time you're on. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's always so much fun. Thank you. And so maybe we'll very quickly wrap up. Our uh, patient did not have a CNS lesion, weaned off oxygen, amoxicillin did great, went home. So another successful uh, client of Cashlet Children's Hospital. In wrapping up, we've talked about a lot of different things. Can you give us your main takeaway points that you want listeners to know about hyponatremia going forward? Yeah, so I think, you know, the key takeaways are that hyponatremia is all about water and thinking about water balance. We use it because we are worried about tonicity and we're worried about water shifting. Your first tests you should do are to confirm your serum sodium and check a serum osm. And then after that, you're going to think about whether it is ADH dependent or ADH independent. And everything else kind of flows from there. I love it. And for people that want to learn more or share anything else that you're interested in uh, in life right now, anything that you'd like to plug or anything that we should send our listeners to to check out? So Joel Toff has this amazing fluid electrolyte acid-based handbook, which goes through a lot of some of the things that we've covered tonight in detail. And I would say that it's a great primer for people who are interested in understanding some of the physiology with case applications as well. And it's available, not to plug him too much, but it's available on his website, which is pbfluids.com. Amazing. We'll, we'll link to it in the show notes. Which, which stands for Precious Bodily Fluids. Which is a reference to a Stanley Kubrick movie. It is. It's amazing. All, all comes back to, to Joel Toff and Stanley Kubrick. Michelle, thank you so much. Once again, I appreciate your insights and expertise in, in teaching us about the wonderful kidney. Thank you for coming on to the Cribsiders. Absolutely. Happy to be your nephrologist. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Cribsiders. For the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player, or send us an email at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Steve Wilson and Dr. Sam Mazur, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Steve Wilson. I've been Sam Mazur. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night. And for those of you who've made it all the way to the end, here's your reward. As always, a poem written by Artificial Intelligence. In children's blood where sodium runs low, hyponatremia's threat begins to grow. A malady that does not spare the young, a dance with care and caution oft unsung. With watchful eyes, the doctors diagnose a saline drip or water strict impose. The treatment plan so deftly undertaken restores assault, a crisis is forsaken. 
Fluid bounce managed with great skill. In gentle hands, the little ones grow still. The parents' fears are eased as tides align. A child's health returns. Bright sun does shine. Through wisdom, care, and science intertwined, a remedy for bounce they do find. Hyponatremia's wave is turned to mere, a ripple in life's pond, no longer fear. This gentle fight against a hidden foe, a dance with salt that many come to know. With knowledge, care, and love's relentless beat, hyponatremia find its sure defeat. See you guys. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.